Welcome, everybody. Got a good crowd tonight. Um, Davis was here in 2013. That's unbelievable. That's the last time I saw you. And when he was here in 2013, he was on a panel of prodigals, and he shared his journey, and I'm just going to tell you just briefly about it. He's a local, born and raised at Piedmont, born at Piedmont Hospital, grew up around here, went to Walton High School, eventually got kicked out of several high schools, got in dr- trouble with drugs and alcohol, got criminal charges, went to jail, went to treatment, had mental health issues because of his addiction. Um, over and over he struggled with this. He finally got sober at Bridges of Hope, and when he got sober, his life changed, and as a result of his getting sober at Bridges of Hope, Davis today has been in private practice for seven years at Park Air, right close to here. He's got his master's degree in um, social work with a concentration in children and families. He got that from Kennesaw State in 2016. He works at Park Air. He spends a lot of his free time uh, working to educate the community on addiction, treatment, and mental health. He's going to talk about the importance of an appropriate diagnosis slash intervention for mental health when learning how to deal with a prodigal child. So his story is incredible. I w- I'm not going to read it to you because it would take too long, but he'll probably touch on it a little bit. And he's an open book, and he'll be glad to stay afterwards and answer questions. So let me go ahead and pray, and then Davis, welcome you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for being in our midst, Lord, and just uh, for loving us and for our loving our, our children. And Father, tonight I just pray you'll speak through Davis in a mighty way. Just give him your words, Lord, that his words will be your words. Offer us words of hope, encouragement, and truth in love, Father. We just look forward to what he has to say, Father, and we just praise you for who you are. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, y'all. Nice to meet you. I know some of y'all. You know, um, I have a lot of respect for the Brocards and this ministry over the years. And she reached out to me, I think it was like maybe a month ago, asking me to come in and speak. And uh, so I had a lot of time to prepare. And so I sat down, I think, on three different occasions. I read some Eastern Coptic interpretation of the prodigal and... I sat and prayed and tried to come up with what I needed to share, and all three times nothing came. So she asked for a topic, and I just kind of sent one out, but I really don't have a plan for what I'm going to share tonight, uh, but I hope it will serve you guys. I um, It's kind of surreal for me, actually, coming back here after, I guess it was 2013, so it's been quite a while. At that time, I was kind of new in my journey of being sober and employable and uh, trying to get my ducks in a row. And I was part of the recovery community and industry and treatment, and I've really stepped away from that. Um, I felt like there was just so much marketing and business, and the, it was just I didn't like the feeling of the recovery industry. And so being in private practice has been really nice for me. Um, I work at Park Air Consultants down the street, and they have invested an enormous amount of time in me uh, in training me how to understand, diagnose, and treat all sorts of different disorders, particularly in children. And I think working with children um, has really, really changed my perspective on people in general. Uh, Children have so much to teach us, especially children like yours. Um, 
I will preface this by saying it's humbling to speak to parents not being a parent. Because one of the other things I've learned is that there are some experiences that a parent has that you just cannot comprehend until you are a parent. Um, And so to be able to all come together here uh, in fellowship with each other, I really encourage you to lean on each other and get to know each other, probably past what you're comfortable with, honestly. Uh, I think that's so important. So a little bit about my story, uh, and I'm going to try and tie it into what I've learned in the last couple years about mental health. I was born Piedmont Hospital. Uh, my mom and dad, uh, my mom was a, a beauty queen, and my dad was a very successful attorney, and they came from rural Georgia uh, into Atlanta, and they were kind of very successful socially. They were at Presbyterian, Pre- uh, what is it, Peachtree Presbyterian. They had a Sunday school with all their friends from UGA. Uh, they still are friends with all of those people, but I was raised in Mount Bethel Church. So I pulled up and I saw these cute little kids walking with their moms. Uh, at the time, I didn't really appreciate uh, what was being done for me, being raised. So I was, it was Boy Scouts on Tuesdays. I had chimes, choir, uh, vacation Bible school always, Sunday school always, church always, Wednesday dinner, of course. Um, I didn't really appreciate what that did for me until much, much later. Um, But I feel so thankful to be in a church and be part of that today. Um, So where did it get crazy, I I suppose? Um, My mother has OCD. She also has a mood disorder. Um, She's a sweet woman, but she struggled with those parts of herself. And being her son, um, I started demonstrating a lot of those characteristics, ADHD and OCD, in early childhood. And so it's kind of, it's important to understand like how children make sense of that, right? So for example, I couldn't sit in a chair in the classroom, or I would speak out in a social situation where it wasn't appropriate, or I would do or say things that were odd. Or I would have fantasies or behaviors that didn't really fit the situation. I couldn't read a room. I couldn't regulate my own emotions very well. And I was prone to a lot of obsessions and compulsive behavior. And so, you know, they try to take me to the church and they try to take me to a a psychiatrist. uh, And I was prescribed um, Ritalin. So I think I was six when I started taking Ritalin. Um, and the effects were, were positive in one sense because I was better able to regulate my behavior, right? But at the same time, what my parents weren't aware of and what I was not um, kind of old enough to have the wherewithal to speak to was how it was affecting my underlying issues with anxiety and mood, right? So what we know is that these stimulants oftentimes aggravate anxiety disorders. So you see things like tics, Tourette's. I had those. The psychiatrist wasn't well trained and didn't pick up on that. So what we had was uh, a situation where I'm constantly acting out because of this anxiety. They think it's because of the ADHD. So we keep pouring more amphetamines on this. So you, you just have to wonder kind of, you know, what lesson does a child take from this, right? Is there something wrong with me? Am I bad? Uh, do drugs solve my problems? 
right? And so I started to adopt, probably in fifth grade, this kind of obsession with the bad guy. Uh, this obsession with being bad, being kind of, you know, I would watch the, the, the movies and, and I'd cheer for the bad guy, or I'd identify with, you know, a bank robber or the, the criminal in the story. And I, in retrospect, I think it's because I was in trouble so much behind these mental health issues, and I was receiving such constant negative feedback from the adults around me. You know, children really don't know who they are. Uh, especially young, 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 little children. And so how we gaze at them, how we attribute meaning to their behavior and their sense of self, they take on, right? And I don't think anybody environment, certainly not my parents, would ever mean for me to pick that up, but that's how I picked it up. And like I said before, my, my mind wasn't thinking clearly anyway. So when I was in middle school... Um, I remember I was prescribed promethazine codeine. Anybody ever taken that? It's, a, it's an opioid and a, another drug. It's sort of like an opioid that helps for nausea and coughing. And this was after some kind of strap infection or something like that. And I remember feeling like, oh, wow, uh, well, this is how I should be feeling. And so I can remember going to Boy Scouts in middle school the, it's called like the silver beaver banquet or something and there I am out of my head and of course no one suspects because you're in 7th grade right then I start taking this at school because I wanted to feel calm calm down 8th grade I'm in this kind of identity crisis where I'm the bad kid I got they, I remember at St. Francis Middle School they had um, a chart for your demerits the most demerits, two years running. Now, I suppose that's supposed to di- discourage children, but I remember feeling like, well, if I can't be good, then I'll be the best bad boy, right? And so I actually felt a sense of pride that here I was with all A's, smartest kid, and I got all the demerits. So this kind of arrogant, bad guy ego development is happening, and I'm using drugs and alcohol by this point first time I had a sip of alcohol I had the same exact reaction I did to the opioids which was well this is what I've been missing all along this is my secret sauce I just need to take some of this in the morning and at night and that'll regulate my difficulties and I didn't draw a sober breath from the age of probably 14 to 21 and I mean ever driver's ed under the influence Uh, prom under the influence virginity under the influence fights with parents under the influence all the developmental milestones graduation under the influence so my perception was really uh, skewed and I'll tell you uh, the way I related to alcohol was very different from my friends I knew that immediately it was as if um, first of all it did something more for me the, the feeling was just, oh, wow, this is meaningful, right? There's a confusion there. And then when I would not take it, I would notice being preoccupied with how do I make that feeling happen again? And so and that was accompanied by a sense of restlessness, irritability, uh, discontentedness. 
that could only be relieved by that same drug. And so my life took took its kind of course in these two poles. One where I'm restless, irritable, discontented, acting out, getting in trouble, and the other where I'm intoxicated and don't have my wits. So, like Mr. Brokart talked about, through my high school, I really kind of uh, acted out a lot of um, pretty outrageous, really, uh, criminal behavior. I'm very fortunate to not be in prison uh, or under the prison. Uh, I won't get into all the the, the nitty-gritties of that, but it certainly scared my parents, and it really traumatized me, honestly. I didn't quite recognize that at the time, but... I developed a very serious anger uh, towards the world. Actually, I was wrongfully arrested uh, for one of the biggest charges. And, but my, my history was so checkered, there was no defending myself. And I can remember feeling really mistreated by the diversion people at, at Cobb County, and, and I developed this kind of, I don't know, this entitled... Angry victim kind of stance. It's very popular today. Um, <laughs> but I, I really like embrace that. And, and, and then I got the politics to go with it. So I was, you know, all about criminal justice reform and the man and East Cobb. Oh, you know, uh, most of that got fixed when I started working though. Um, so I, I, I narrowly get through high school. Um, I went to University of Alabama, and I went through a lot of uh, trauma, okay? So, uh, you know, some personal things. I, I had a girlfriend who was assaulted in a, a really bad way, and the loss of some peers uh, pretty frequently, and uh, some head injuries from some violence I had been involved in for years, a, a lot of violence. And I started developing a migraine, okay? So I start this migraine headache, and it ran for, I think, 17 months, okay? Now, I've been relying on drugs and alcohol to get myself through the day for quite a while at this point, and now I'm in this terrible pain, and these drugs aren't doing what they're supposed to do. In fact, they're making this migraine worse. So what was I to do? And I knew not to play with opioids because I'd seen so many of my friends get so mixed up. But I, so I went and got a prescription um, in spite of that. And same thing happened. Oh, man, I should have been, this is it, right? But by that time, I knew I was on a slippery slope. And that was the beginning of the big change for me because I had been positioned in... Um, such an intense level of constraint. Uh, it, it, it's hard to describe. I, you know, I will wake up constantly throwing up. I had all sorts of cavities from how often I was throwing up from the pain. Uh, none of the doctors could seem to sort it. My parents couldn't be of much use. All the drugs we tried, I'd have terrible side effects. And I was really at my wits end, and now I was strung out on opioids, which was expensive, and I'd engage in all sorts of crime to to keep that going. Um, and finally, I actually called up a counselor that 
had helped me and I the court mandated that I get a counselor after a charge when I was probably 15 and I was really fortunate for who I got involved with um I called her and I said hey I need some help uh I need to meet down meet with my parents and let them know I was scheduled to have Botox in my head to help with the migraines and I I could just sense that my relationship with the drugs was going to interfere with the possibility of a treatment. So there's some grace, right? Because how is it that I had the wherewithal to reach out to my parents? I don't know. I mean, one of the saddest things about this time in my life was my parents had become simply obstacles or resources. There was no real capacity to form a meaningful relationship. It is difficult to describe, and I'm sure all of you know, how painful that arrangement was. Uh, But somehow that kind of obsession and that way I was living eclipsed my ability to bear witness to how painful and... I always loved my parents, but I was so disconnected. But we met up, and they said, all right, well, go to Ridgeview and get cleaned up. And I couldn't do it. I could not do it. Um, I couldn't deal with the pain I was in with my head, which was psychosomatic. It was a reflection of the emotional pain I was having from not living right. There was no organic cause, and that's why there was no cure. So I burned my life to the ground a second time over the course of a year. Um, It was uh, flamboyant. And I saw some scary things in myself and in my mind and in other people that I won't forget. And I really did have a new sense of fear about what my choices were doing to my mind. I was really concerned I was going to go crazy. Um... It, it was in those months that I came to believe in, you know, some of the scarier things we hear about in the Bible. And so I was really shook, um, and I got caught in a lie, and my parents told me that they were done, period. And they changed the locks on the house, and they really changed their stance from we're going to help you no matter what to I remember having a real fear that they were really really done Uh, that I had really crossed some kind of line and I knew that because when my mom came to see first of all they left me in treatment for weeks without even answering the phone and when my mom finally did come to see me she would not even look at me so there was a there was a kind of a rebuke there that really struck me in a, in a powerful way. And finally I said, you know, I'll go wherever, wherever that'll take me, find me the cheapest, most difficult place, and I will go there. And so they sent me to this crazy place called Bridges of Hope. Um, and I am still so thankful to this day for Bridges of Hope. But it was something unlike anything I'd been a part of. I was basically working on a farm all day long. Um, We would sing church hymns with Mennonites. (laughs) How many of y'all have been around Mennonites? 
They're a trip. Uh, they, you talk about rigid, boy, but sweet, sweet people. Very literal, you know. But something about it really drew me to them. They were so uh, kind-hearted and, and gentle. And so we would sing uh, when the roll is called out yonder. We would sing all these old-school church hymns. So me and all these like ex-con prison guys... <laughs> Or at the Bridges of Hope, singing with the Mennonites. And something about that was really healing for me. I, I can't explain why, but there's just something beautiful to it. And I spent most of my day reading any kind of spiritual literature I could get my hands on. Uh, any kind of philosophy, any kind of self-help, any kind of AA stuff. I just... And prayer started to become a major, major part of my life. I have not... There has not been a day that passed since I got sober that I have not prayed. Uh, that, and it came, it, it came on, uh, like constantly. And so I would, I would meditate and I would, I would listen to the prayers in, in my mind. And it's important to emphasize, it was a work in progress, though. I mean, on one end I was sober, but. I still had all of the bad characterological ego issues. So I had this kind of... <laughs> I, I just maneuvered through life in a pretty odd way. Uh, it was probably unpleasant to be around, honestly. Uh, so I moved back after... I spent 10 months there. I ended up working there. Got my um, bachelor's degree from Georgia State. And I remember... I'm moving into this dorm. There's all these young people. They're drinking and, and having fun, and that wasn't for me anymore. And I would cry. I was so lonely. I didn't have a car. My parents said no. Um, and and so I guess I leaned back on what I learned at Mount Bethel, and so I would go buy food, and I would go hang out with the homeless people in Hurt Park in downtown Atlanta. And those were my first friends in college. <laughs> This this married homeless couple and Pierre and I can't remember her name and I joined this yoga studio with all these kind of frumpy lesbian women and um, I just really I joined these different clubs the Middle Eastern club and just really looking for a sense of community and eventually I found that in AA um, and it was good for me because I could go in and speak and people say oh wow you're so great and then I feel good and I think AA was mostly for me to kind of build a sense of self-esteem more than anything, honestly. Um, and then I kind of got into the recovery world, uh, you know, working in treatment centers. I got my master's. I worked in a domestic violence shelter. Uh, that was beautiful. Uh, I worked in Must Ministries homeless shelter. That was really special, too. And I oftentimes reflect on... And I think it's in Revelations where he talks about where were you when I was hungry? You know, and I just, when I see that homeless person or my client or who, or even you, I know who I'm really seeing. And so there's a, a kind of seriousness that's emerged in me that I didn't expect. Actually, I felt quite nervous when I was first asked to come here. It had been a long time since I'd been in a church. And I remember John praying on me with this group of young people and thinking, this is kind of odd. Um, 
I did not feel like that today. I felt so thankful uh, to sit in front and, and hear you pray. And I, I just... So there's been a kind of spiritual transformation that's occurred along the way beyond what had happened in AA to where I really feel a... a it's, it's humbling um, to meet the people I meet and especially now knowing what I know about children and how people work. But I, So I got my master's and I entered into private practice. And what I've seen has been really fascinating, especially when we think about the story of the prodigal. I see these kids, you know, seven, six years old, and I realize that a lot of these kids don't have a choice about the problems that they have. What do you do with that? It's really hard to reconcile. If you really get down to it, it is hard to understand. How does forgiveness play into this? What did they choose? So what I see is these kids come in, and they're acting out in school, and we do a screening on them, and they got a receptive language disorder, and they got OCD, or they have Tourette's, or maybe they had some kind of abuse. And then I see these really predictable patterns of behavior. Well, where did these things come from? They came from their genes. Science has, has showed us that. Or they come from bad experiences. And you see the child act out without really any conscious understanding of what it is that they're doing. Remember that? That was like me. I can remember gam running gambling odds in like fourth grade about how many times the door would open. Classic OCD stuff. I didn't choose that. <laughs> Nobody in my family gambles, right? <laughs> I don't gamble even. So I see these kids and then I see the world react to them. And man, the world does not react like Christ to these children. And that kills me so bad. Because the world teaches these children that they're bad, or that they're stupid, or that they're crazy, or that they're lazy. And then I see those children believe that, and then they act out those qualities onto other people around them, and then the cycle continues and it's reinforced until all sorts of awful ends. What does that mean? I don't know. I just, when I see these children, I become convinced of a couple things. Number one, and it's with adults too, it's not just children, because adults were once children, right? Uh, I am convinced that God loves every single person who sits in my office. And it's a, it's a, it's a certainty. It's not a, oh, God loves you. It's a really felt, certainty okay so this person's struggling and yet God loves them how do we square that it's so confounding it really is um, but then I think of this story the prodigal son and I think about what the gospel teaches about forgiveness well I think about what Jesus means <laughs> Well, there is no forgiveness if we are not flawed. 
period. That prodigal story uh, is not the resurrection. All, all of it makes no sense without the fact that we are all cornered in our limits and struggling like these children. I am that kid, right? But so are each of us. That's how I take the meaning of the gospel, right? So the other thing I've seen is that God seems insistent on turning his liabilities into assets. You see this theme so often in life. It's in every good movie, right? It's in, it's in the gospel as well. This story of redemption, this story of people being broken and being flawed, and then some kind of transformation occurring in the flaws that they've dogged them, that they've hated themselves for so long for, end up being the thing they serve with. So there's a kind of mystery to all of this, but I guess what's had to change in me is that I've had to step away from um, a, my own kind of cultural, learned, rigid ideas about what a human is and about what behavior means and about when to judge somebody and the answer is probably never that's what I've had to learn is that it's never right to judge there's always an explanation some suffering this person had led to more suffering where I find a lot of peace though is in another certainty that comes up when I work with these children there's a certainty that it's a process Right? There's a certainty that it's serving something, that there's some purpose to it, that there's some meaning to it more than how it looks. And I have to be really open and curious about what that purpose might be. So I see myself today as hoping to facilitate an environment where that liability can become an asset where I can hopefully posture myself with that Christ-like acceptance and care and nurturing love for the people that struggle so much when it comes to understanding young adults which I suspect many of you have who do have problems with substance abuse I think it's so important that we get really clear on what's going on in here. Because I've done, I used to do a lot of intakes for a three-quarter house. So they'd send me their clients and I'd do a write-up on them. I'd say 30, 45% of them had learning problems. These are kids who had IEPs in school. These are kids who couldn't read well. These are kids who have trouble understanding language. Well, that's something we need to know if we're going to tell them that the big book's going to save their life. Because it ain't going to save their life if they can't read it right. Or a meeting might not be so helpful if they can't understand what's being said. Or if a child has a sensory issue. Right? There, we, we really have to take a deep, long look at how a human being understands their own reality. Because it is very, very different from person to person. And a lot can get mixed up along the way. 
And so what I've found is when I'm working with a young adult, we're going to do the young adult work, like what does it mean to be an adult? What does it mean to be responsible? What does it mean to have agency? What does it mean to have order in your life? Um, but we're also going to look at that stuff. How did we get to this point? What was missed along the way? Uh, what kind of meanings did you get when you couldn't sit still in school? Right? And I've just found it... Uh, so gratifying uh, I feel very fortunate really I, I I feel really privileged and humbled that parents trust me to speak with their children who is the most precious part of their life that's a something I see as a huge responsibility and I think I fumble through it and I, I make a lot of mistakes and I might give the wrong guidance or say the wrong thing but I think that if I stay attuned to that feeling that God is at work with this child in ways that I may not understand, to be curious about what that might look like, to recognize that this is part of a process, and to offer them the mental health treatment they need according to what diagnosis we see, I've had such beautiful experiences of healing. Um, so I hope tonight, uh, I hope this story has been helpful for you. Like I said, I wasn't prepared, so it wasn't as organized as maybe I would have liked. But um, I'd like to be available for any kind of questions anybody has about me or my story or, or your loved one or anything in general. So. Does anybody have any cards that they want to give me or are you all okay just asking questions? Always got to have that first icebreaker. Okay, Mary says start with one of the cards I've got. All right, cool. Okay, let's see. How difficult is it for a young adult to overcome a sexual assault as a child? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think actually most of the people in this room know somebody. This is a, a human universal. Actually, uh, how difficult it is, I think it really depends on the specific case. And I think there's different degrees of healing. Ultimately, I think the goal would be, you know, from a Christian perspective, can this person marry and find a healthy, positive sexual relationship with their spouse? Is that hard for people to do? Absolutely. But is it possible? Yes. I definitely do see that. Um, the way I kind of think of trauma is um, when people share those kind of things with me, the same thing happens, which is very bizarre because what they're sharing with me is just awful. But I feel a sense of real present love uh, in, in, quite intensely when they share. It's almost like they're sharing a treasure with me, even though it's so awful. And so I also know that in some way our wounds serve to open us 
even the most vicious, ugly ones, they serve to open us to something greater. Uh, if we can get the ego calmed down and, and regulated, that can kind of come through. And actually, someone can have a very rich life after a wound like that. And I've known men and women um, who are so happy and uh, stable in their sexual identity and in their life. But it can be difficult. I've also seen people to just sit down and speak to it, and that was enough. earlier about um, people who have been beat down a lot with negativity. Mm -hmm. um, do you see many of them overcoming that? And how, I know it's a lot, but how do they overcome that? Well, I, the way I, I see that issue is each child or each person has some beautiful attributes. Right? Everybody has something we can fall in love with about them. Unfortunately, for some of us, especially when we're younger or even longer, we're only capable of showing some of our rougher edges. So we almost encourage the negative reflections, right? What I like to say is, if that person can find somebody that really loves them, to focus in on whatever their praiseworthy, beautiful quality is and nourish it, validate it, speak to it, remind them of it. What I've seen is that child or that person can remember, oh yeah, I have this, right? And those new attributes or those old attributes that have been forgotten can lead. Hmm? I do. I have a brother, and my brother just got married, and he is, um, he did not go through anything like this. <laughs> Why do you ask? I think that's what I wanted to know. Yeah, it, it, well, it says something. It, I think that's one of the things I like to tell parents to kind of take them off the hook is, hey, you know, I, so many parents blame themselves for all of this. Um, my brother and I were parented in the same home. He made A's and B's, went to Walton, followed the script, went to UGA, joined a fraternity, met his sweetheart, got to work in Atlanta, married her in Tallahassee, got a good insurance job, drives a Used Honda Accord, nice as he could be, modest in every respect, plays golf twice a week. I look up to him a lot. Uh, very put together guy. Probably, though, because he saw he's my younger brother. He didn't want to act out what he saw in the home with me. You mentioned you think it's important to understand uh, some of their learning disabilities or audio-visual problems yeah. that they have. Um, yeah, 
What's what are some of the methods to identify those slaves besides teachers? It, it, this this was hard for me because I'm kind of old school, I guess. You know, I had a colleague come to me today. He said, "Yeah, my my client told me he met his new best friend at the peanut free table," and I'm thinking, "Oh God," you know. I, I was kind of raised in, you know, toughen up, get through it, put your head down, work hard. And I think there's some value to that. But what I've come to understand is we got to be really sensitive. Have to. Because some of these children do not, do not that function in the same way that other children do. And any educator... I mean, you could go talk to a middle school or an elementary school teacher, and they will tell you that there are some distinct differences in what they observe. In terms of how to put your finger on what's going on, there's a couple ways. Um, most parents will go through the school. And what the school will do is assign a county psychologist to do a psychoeducational evaluation. And that's going to determine IQ and processing speed and working memory and reading and language. But what I've seen is there's a lot of differences in in the quality. Or you might get the wrong diagnosis. (laughs) So what I usually recommend, typically kids start getting services when the teachers say, hey, we can't. Little Johnny, you know, he is off the chain here. He's got to get some help. That's when I think it's most appropriate to get a test. But I've recommended tests for young adults uh, who I thought would really benefit. And it's really relieving for a lot of people, honestly. Oh, man, I'm not crazy. I came like this. This is a liability I have to attend to, period. i got to take responsibility because the world doesn't care. But at least there's an explanation. But I think how we discuss that with children is really important because it's so easy, if we discuss it the wrong way, to convince a kid that he's broken. And therapy can be funny like that. you got your kid in therapy and then OT and then the tutor for his dyslexia and then the, this for his dysgraphia. And all of a sudden, every reflection he's getting is that something's wrong with him. So we have to be really mindful, I think would be the word. But yeah, I think a neuropsychological evaluation from a trained, licensed psychologist is the best way to get clear on learning. So a therapist is not going to be able... One of our therapists, I'd be able to point it out to you, but I would probably recommend a test. right? Because social workers, counselors marriage and family therapists, Christian counselors, not trained in learning, not trained in body spatial awareness. It's kind of like, y'all remember being in school, the kid who's goofy? There's always one. And he's goofy in PE, and he's goofy at the dance, and his gait is funny. That means something here, you see? Those are the things, you know, back in the day, just, ah, that weird guy, he'll do something. Uh Uh-uh. We gotta, we have to reach that, that guy. We have to love that child and understand him. And we gotta offer him some help because there's some really good things we can do on the front end. Especially when it comes to language, right? I thought you did an awesome job.
Thanks. You're a great therapist. Our son worked with you for a long time. But so after the after you went to the treatment center, um, no relapse or you mentioned okay. No, and 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 no craving either. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, it was very unusual. Okay, but then you started working there. Yeah, I did. and I think that's part of the reason why I had success was my life got built around this story about redemption and, and my parents were so proud um, people in the community celebrated me I feel kind of silly to be celebrated now uh, but at the time I really needed that um, so kind of integrating my personal identity into the sober guy, which is kind of, it was kind of goofy, but it worked. And so I got involved in the business of recovery, was pretty turned off by it, but knew I wanted to work directly with clients. And so I, I still work in recovery, but I don't work for a treatment center It's kind of amazing, though, that whatever challenges you were having, OCD, weren't, weren't actually addressed with medicine or, I guess, maturity had a lot to do with it and hitting the bottom. Well, I'll tell you, uh, it, it's interesting. Um, when I went, I've never shared this before, but here we go. Uh, when I went to Ridgeview, okay, to detox, and I had these migraines, they said, we want you to take Cymbalta. Cymbalta is an SNRI. All right? It's like an SSRI, except it's got an extra group in there. It's another transmitter, too. So it's a powerful drug. That helped the pain. And I kept taking it. So my life gets together. I'm living on my own. I'm a therapist. I'm doing great. I decide, well, I don't need this drug anymore. I'm having some side effects. It was the worst four months of my entire life. Worse than anything I went through before. Coming off Cymbalta completely changed me. And I had to get on Lexapro, which is in a similar family, kind of next door. And that was the only way I was able to downregulate. It was really humbling to see that I kind of slipped into what so many Americans go through. And I'm not against meds. I'm not. I've seen, I'll tell you, I've seen children who could not be functional without antipsychotics. I mean, as young as seven. And I have seen it where I had a child come in who the devil was telling him, or what he thought was the devil, I don't know, hundreds of times a day to end his life beautiful, cute, blonde. He used to come to sessions, dress up like a firefighter. I mean, he was just great. But here this is. We put him on a Billify. Gone. I mean, so I've seen meds do so much good. I've seen meds do so much wrong. I think what I recommend when I'm thinking about a psychiatrist for a client is that psychiatrist has to absolutely must care about you. You have to feel cared about. 
If you're seeing a doctor, if you're seeing a therapist, if you're seeing a counselor and you don't feel like that person loves you, they probably don't. Now, how is a child going to get well if they don't feel loved? You see? So, and that includes physicians. It's not just meds. Because when the meds go wrong or when the child has a fear, when there's a side effects that needs to be addressed, they need to feel safe reaching out to that psychiatrist. So I do a lot of time educating my clients on what meds do, how difficult it can become to come off of them, uh, what possible side effects can occur, what combinations don't work. I think it's really, really important that if a child or a family member is going to take a medication, everybody needs to read up, understand it, and get really clear. And then they can make that decision. So I still take Lexapro. Uh, and that's what I'm living. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, I was really paranoid about it. And I would tell every doctor, I'm in recovery and I can't take this. Now I don't tell my doctors uh, because I don't want that to influence the way they care for me. And I know it will with some doctors. Uh, I've been prescribed opioids a couple times. Uh, in sobriety for surgeries and issues and I did not have the same experience I had before I didn't like feeling like um, I didn't have the clarity I was accustomed to I didn't like the tension it brought up with us being sober I didn't like yeah it just I, I did not have that now, I know some others where it really is like a switch. And I know that switch. So quite frankly, I was a little surprised. I had my parents distribute the medicine after my surgery, but by the end, I was distributing it fine, and then they gave me a big refill, and I tossed it. So what I'll say has been really instrumental for me is I meet with the same group of five guys every single week, every week for about two and a half hours on Sundays. All these guys pray. We've hit our milestones together. They're all educated. They're all sober. They're employed, married, except for one who's kind of a loose cannon. Um, and, And we have dinner together every Friday night, much to our wife's occasional frustration. Um... They think it's like the boys' club. I don't think they really appreciate because they all met us sober. So they don't really get why we got to get together and have this kind of fellowship to support us not coming unglued, right? Uh, but really, there's not a feeling in my life of that that's a reality. I, don't, I feel very protected. I feel like uh, my, my role here in life is to serve. And as long as I stay holding on to that steadfast, I don't feel like I need to worry about uh, addiction in the way I did. But I was fearful for many years, yeah. 
Sure. So would you feel comfortable sharing a little bit more about how your parents, you know, how, how you were talking about your, your, you made a change because, uh, partly because of the way that your parents were, um, I, I <coughs> cut you off. You said they changed the locks on the house. Yeah. So was that when you were at Ridgeview? Or was that before you went to Ridgeview? Okay, so I got caught in a lie, and basically it was apparent I needed to go back for a second time. While I was there, Mm -hmm. they changed the law. I think my mother took my pictures off the wall, actually. So they basically got frustrated. Yeah, they said, we're we're done. You got it. Um, And there's such that balance between supporting somebody who has mental unwellness, right? And they're making the wrong choices. Well, again, yeah. So we get to back to this crazy paradox, which is I know I'm supposed to look at this child like Christ should, with love and acceptance and care, but yet I'm also responsible for not encouraging their downfall. Mm-hmm. I think for my parents it was this kind of, they're, they had always supported me so much. I mean, they did way too much. Way too much for me. Especially my dad. He's, his dad died when he was a child. And he had this just gentle, soft, real deep affection for his boys. Which is a beautiful thing, but, but this addictive piece of me just trampled on it. Uh, and I just got the sense that it was time to be self... It, it was like they were done. They were done. And I had to figure it out on my own. And if I didn't figure it out, there was no more money. That's really what it came down to. And that's what I advise parents is, look, the, the door for a loving relationship should always stay open. Right now, it can get so bad it needs to be facilitated by a counselor. But the door for love has to stay open. But the door for resources, that one needs to get shut. If the kid's abusing the resources that are being offered, especially an adult. But it is hard, and what I've learned is addiction seeds itself in the differences between parents and it sees itself in the in the blind spots that we all have and children have a funny way of having the same blind spots as their parents or embodying the traits in their parents that their parents don't like about themselves and it's so personal and so painful and so intense those moments are But yeah, I got a real clear sense that the that they were done. Oh, Unless but in twenty two? Unless but they left a door open and the door was if you go to this farm and, and work like a dog for X amount of months and then maybe we can revisit the subject of supporting you. So my parents paid for my undergraduate. If I hadn't had that, 
my life would look different. This is an anonymous question, but would you have any <laughs> to the stress that having a, an addicted child or a prodigal child uh, places on a on a marriage and, and the, the differences that the, the two partners would have about dealing with the issue? I'll try. <laughs> I've been married for coming up on three years. And I tell you this, if I had a child that acted the way that I did, I do not know how on earth me and my wife would deal with that. I, just getting married has made me so much respectful of the parents that I work with. Uh, my, some of my friends are having children now, and I'm seeing how intense that is, how stressful. I suspect what I would say is this. Typically, the way we parent, the way we relate to children, is based on the way our parents related to us early on. And so I think it helps to have partners that are reflecting on their own history and how that informs some of their kind of knee-jerk reactions to things. I think that, like I was saying to Rebecca, I guess the, the, the program, as it were, would be both parents need to be on the same page in terms of we need Christ's gaze toward the child. We, we have to know that. So that door for love, that has to be real. So they have to be on the same page there. We can't hate children. On the other hand, we have to also have to be on the same page in terms of when it's appropriate to shut the money door. And those are two different things. So my sense is that that's where families get the most friction. It's about when to shut the door, when to pull the trigger, how to pull it. Um, and I think a lot of that comes back from our own family history. But I also think that parents can take some space from the problem too. That's the sense that I got from my dad a couple times was I'm not going to allow you to ruin my marriage. I remember him. He took me into a parking lot at Mount Bethel Church and he said, and I don't, I was talking about this with my wife. I don't even know if this is the right thing for a parent to say. But what he said was, you are forcing me to choose between you and my wife. And I would choose my wife. It was another one of those shocking moments for me. I still haven't quite reconciled how I feel about that. My wife, my mother, pardon me. Freudian slip. My my mother had some real challenges, uh, but it goes to show that the way addiction moves, it loves getting in between. Um, the other thing I'll say that I found is when my partner, when our partners are at their most annoying or their most outrageous they are at their most vulnerable. 
And so I've had to learn that if my wife does something that is something I want to chastise her for, I again have to adjust my gaze. Why why am I going to berate a vulnerable person? It doesn't work. So that's my roundabout answer to your question, Lee. Yes, ma'am. I have a question from a lady I talked to on the phone today before we said tonight, and this is kind of the scenario. She has a 22-year-old daughter living at home, um, drinks straight vodka most every day when she gets home from work. Nice. Um, and night she'll fall asleep and pass out and gets up in the night and goes and eats snacks. She vapes and smokes pot, um, but somehow, I mean, really, she's still keeping a job. But the mom and dad are paying for her to go to counseling, to therapy. Um, and she doesn't know if her daughter is telling the therapist the true person of what she's really doing or not. And she said, I don't, because my daughter's 22, I can't really speak to the therapist. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the daughter knows she has a drinking problem, mm-hmm. but she refuses to go to rehab. Um, parents are very worried. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I run into this problem, honestly, because we have confidentiality. Therapists have to obey the law. Um, I think it comes back to what we were saying earlier, which is, I'll just tell you this. There is no way on earth somebody's going to live in my house that way. I can't accept that. Um, so the way I would break that down is, listen, son, listen, daughter. We adore you. We're here for you. Uh, We want to foster a a loving relationship with you, but we're not going to participate in this. And so if you want our support, like a place to stay, we have to see X, Y, and Z. And if that doesn't happen, well, then you're going to have to figure out X, Y, and Z on your own. As for the therapist... um, If it seems to be helpful and meaningful, then I would say you allow the girl to continue with that option, regardless. Because sometimes a person needs... It's like when I had when I finally came to, the first person I called was my old therapist, right? So there's something to that. But then you also don't know if the child's being forthright with the therapist. Um, But a good therapist isn't going to participate in that. Not long term, anyway. So if you have a son who is um, getting, you know, Guess he's going to graduate so good, but he was sharing the other day that um, what has taken him back at times to using was the guilt that he feels. And how would you counsel? You know, I mean, he's I mean, he's been in a faith-based program, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> and like and I've shared with him, you know, my thoughts. But, um, you know, he just, I think, has a lot of guilt for 
what he's probably put us through, the family, himself, you know. You know, um, he just carries that stress. He carries that stress of that. <coughs> and he, and he did say for the first time, I'd never heard him say that before, to where that has taken him back to use before. Yeah. So, you know. I, uh, I'll tell you something strange. I never... I didn't feel very much guilt about what I went through the first time. But when I got help and then went back to it, I felt a lot of guilt. A couple nights ago, I was sitting in reflection and I started drifting across some memories of the way I treated my father. And I did feel intense shame, which I felt is kind of a grace, honestly, to to meet that part of myself. My sense, though, is that um, I don't know if guilt is a good excuse. My kind of instinct towards it is that there may be some other issue going on, right? Maybe I don't like the way I feel. Maybe I don't know how to address these feelings of guilt. Guilt is not a bad thing. If we know how to meet it and understand it and learn from it. So I would say perhaps maybe it's not the guilt that's the problem. It's the way he's responding to it or what it means to him. Or perhaps even people... (laughs) I made some pretty strange excuses for using. I lost a very dear friend, and that was my... Well, Andy died, so... It was never about Andy. I wanted it to be, because it was my golden ticket. Oh, my friend died, so I was late to school today. I mean, we milked that. Me and my buddies milked it all year long. And Andy would have taken joy in that, but... um, (laughs) Yeah, so that's kind of what comes to my mind. And, and the other thing is, um, I've seen that some people almost are defined by their guilt. Uh, one of my best friends, he carries an enormous amount of guilt for everything. For being white, for driving a car that has gasoline... <laughs> He has, he has a terrible anxiety disorder, though, right? So there's something that I'm thinking, okay, what is he doing with this guilt? What purpose is it serving, you know? The other thing I'll say is most people go through relapse, just to be clear. It's quite unusual that someone gets sober and stays sober. So I also think we kind of have to get comfortable with this idea that this may be a lifelong process for people. Now, I know a lot of parents want to hear, well, he got abstinent at the Bridges of Hope and lived on to happy glory. But the sad fact is, sometimes this journey can take a lifetime. But it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that that person's life doesn't have value. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love that person. It doesn't mean that they can't be a good servant. 
right? It's just they're walking something different and painful. And most good servants have some pain. What would you recommend for a teenager that doesn't want to participate in therapy or won't even go? That's a great question. <clears throat> Here's what I'll say. He loves you. Our daughter would benefit from it. We probably all would, but she Here's what I'll say. Let's do an exercise. You want to do an exercise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Role Each, no. <laughs> Each one of us has had special people that loved us into being who we are. Let's take a moment, just 10 seconds, and close our eyes and think of who that person is for us. (sighs) Okay. Y'all know who did that? Mr. Rogers. I love Mr. Rogers. I thought of this lady named Pat. Pat's an old school feminist. She was a she was the first female pit boss in a Vegas casino. She was my babysitter growing up. She was wa- still wild. She carries a nickel plated revolver. I mean, she is something else. Pat loved me. Being with Pat, she's eighty seven. I still talk to her every week. Being with Pat heals me. Pat doesn't know a thing about learning disabilities or, you know, OCD or any of that. Pat is just unapologetically on my side no matter what. So for the child that doesn't go to therapy, that child needs to be with whoever that person is for them. It could be an aunt. It could be a teacher. It could be a coach. Right? Every child needs somebody like that in their life. When I have a child that's changing schools, the first thing I say is, okay, who is going to be the ally for this kid? Is it going to be the gym teacher? Is it going to be the counselor? Is it going to be the principal? That child needs somebody there. You know? So it doesn't have to be a therapist. It could also be a Sunday school teacher. I cannot tell you how many kind people at Mount Bethel Church poured into me. Boy Scout leaders men who weren't afraid to correct me <laughs> that weren't my dad, you know? But you don't think the phone is the answer? What do you mean? The internet and... No, I don't at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am... Um, <laughs> That's our best friend right now. It is for most kids. Uh, everyone in here can attest to that. Yeah. It's a shame. And it's because we have never been exposed to this in human history. Our brain's not ready for it. Not even adults can control how we deal with this. It's a crazy experiment. I could talk about this issue the rest of the night on my soapbox. (laughs) Did you find the group of guys that you get with, the five um, through AA? Like, did you find an AA? I'm like, 
because that's the thing like our, my son you know he wants to get with therapy when he gets home but he wants to then you know then I don't know what else he needs to do to keep that you know it's it's funny because I almost hate that you asked me this because the way that I came into contact with these guys was so guided that it's I met one guy in a parking lot I mean it was just but yeah they were in that recovery community so we had at least that kind of identification right uh, as corny and kind of rigid as some of those communities can get I'll tell you you're not going to find many places on this earth where young people can come together try and better themselves with a god of their choosing just not you don't have AA and I mean you just don't so what's going on here can be really beautiful. I mean, I've seen meetings with as many as... I told my story to a group in East Cobb Park, and there were probably 200 young, sober, IV drug users. You know, so there is a crowd out there. I certainly wouldn't recommend sending some 16-year-old who smokes marijuana to Heroin Anonymous, but... It's, it's kind of a mixed bag because you get some really hurt, confused people in some of those forums um, and in some of those businesses, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, there's good people out there in those, in those rooms, really good people, people who, people who know that to have a good life, they got to help others, and they really live that. So really, they're just living the gospel. <laughs> you call it what you like. Yes, sir? Davis, would you say that one of the best things that your mom and dad did for you on this journey was to give you the ultimatum and kick you out unless you went through bridges of hope? Yeah, that was one of the best things they did, but I'll also add to that that they promised me that they'd... Well, they implied... <laughs> because I think they were pretty skeptical of much, anything, uh, that I could get my education if I was a good boy. So you got to, I mean, really? You got to, like, break it down to five years old. You really do. Because that's, that part of the mind has been so, and you can read about what addiction does to the reward pathways in the brain. It really compromises the prefrontal cortex. So you're dealing with a primitive person. Davis, we're done here. We are not helping you any longer. You are not going to be a part of this family acting the way you are today. If you choose to get help, then we can offer you some help moving forward after the fact. But until you do... We're not doing it. And I knew I couldn't get myself out of the hole I was in. Well, yeah, there was no... So I was cornered, effectively. 
But they had to do that for themselves and for you to move on, didn't they? Yeah, 100%. So I think my dad, for his own self-respect, for his own self-respect. So you were 22, 21? You know... I don't even know my sober date. I think it's in July. And I would have been 21. Yep, I was 21. Another question. In hindsight, should they have done it sooner? I I can't answer that. I wish I could. I wish uh, so badly that there was an equation to follow. But if we had that, you wouldn't need your group. Um, I'm, I'm cautious about people who do have an equation. Uh, it, it, and, and that's what's so bizarre about this mystery of the prodigal. We wouldn't have had the feast if the kid, you know. I wouldn't have been able to share with you today and feel loved and, and try to give love if I hadn't gone through what I went through, I could have been, let's say I got sober and became like a powerhouse attorney. I probably would have been an egomaniac. It's just the way I'm wired. So so now I'm playing Mr. Rogers. That keeps me kind of right where I need to be. So I'm grateful that it happened exactly the way that it did. Any advice for the for, for parents of, of other siblings who are kind of um, being lost by all your focus on the prodigal and um, maybe their resentment? The it was sad. It was sad for me because when I came home from college, my brother was a different person because I'd taken up all the air in the room. I still do sometimes. Um, How did you guys restore your relationship? Carefully. I I felt a real... I had taken advantage of him. Took his money. Bullied him. Especially when... Even before drugs. Because I was so not right mentally. I was very cruel to my little brother. Uh, not always. I mean, we were close. But there were some things that were just... Whoa. Um... When I got sober, there was a sense like I needed to be real careful about how I spoke to my brother from now on. And I haven't had a cross word with my brother since I was 21 years old. Not one. Now, I did call him. sat down and I made my amends. He didn't... He's. He's not into the, like, therapy feeling talk. And there's some value in that, honestly. My wife's that way. I respect it. Um, but I could tell he heard me. Um, and that that was enough for him. And so now I don't ever disrespect my little brother. I try and celebrate him and um, make him feel appreciated and loved. But I just had to, I had to get to a point where I could take stock of the way that I'd harmed him. 
and then articulate that myself. And my parents helped too. I think that they, yeah, actually, this is something I'm remembering now. My parents made it very clear to me while I was away at treatment how angry my brother was. And I had 10 months to sit and think on that fact. And it bothered me. Something about it really bothered me. Because what, it's easy to put stuff on your parents, hate your parents. But my brother had never done any kind of wrong to me, you know. It took years. It took years. Actually, that was the most difficult relationship to repair. Which was interesting because my parents really caught the most flack. Um, my brother was very, very cautious around me for probably three years. He did not believe. Uh, no one really did, but he did not believe that it was possible for me. I mean, I traumatized him, the things that he saw, the things that my family went through, you know, uh, guns, it, scary stuff. He didn't trust me. He, but I just kept showing up reliably. Every year there's a birthday present and a thoughtful card. I call him and tell him I'm proud of him when he hits his milestones. I celebrate him when he gets his house. I'm respectful to his wife and just slowly but surely. And now I went to his bachelor party in Austin, Texas. Talk about... (laughs) It's just some UGA boys. I don't drink, obviously. And these boys, whew, they can. And it was a wild weekend. And I had a blast. I mean, it was just, I had a great time. I was so proud to see my brother be the life of the party and celebrated by his peers. I didn't even think about drinking. I was just so proud to be there and try and represent him proudly to his friends and our family and so yeah a lot can change now sisters is something I know a little less about <clears throat> how do you get your clients well um, I don't do any kind of marketing I uh, don't I'm on our website, but I'm on my own website. Um, it's just been word of mouth. So do you counsel just not just young children? Do yeah? Can you take on all of our kids? <laughs> I'm I'm completely booked up. Um, there aren't that many male there aren't that many male counselors, honestly. Um, so r- repeat. The second part of the question? There's another. You oh, mentioned something? I just what age. Oh, I work with, my youngest child I've ever worked with is six. That's a little too young for me because I like a lot of language. And I've worked with 50s, 60s. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I think my favorite, I like really badly behaved 12-year-old boys. <laughs> Those are the ones I think Jesus loves the most. Uh, I just, those are ch- something about that child, that cohort. I just, boom. 
And I didn't. Uh, the reason I wanted to work with children in the beginning was so I could learn more about young adults. And children are harder to work with because you got to work with parents. Uh, that can be kind of interesting. Um, but children are much easier. They're much more flexible. Much more flexible. Yeah, children can change fast. They're more teachable, right? Yes. But the, around 13, that ego starts forming. We start seeing those goofy defenses. We start, they, they build that, that self, the self that gets in all our way every day. <laughs> they get one of those, uh, and it's solid, and it's hard to get through. But before then, yeah, I love getting a kid who's like in fifth grade and thinks that he's no good because we're going to find out exactly why he's awesome. Yeah. Well, David, we thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.